Hello and welcome to A Place for Truth. A Place for Truth is a regular monthly meeting we hold on Zoom, which brings together Reformed theologian intellectuals for conversations around today's cultural issues in a public online forum. Enjoy today's conversation. You have not come to a desert mountain. You have come to the living God. You have come to the heavenly city. Second Timothy 3, 14 through 17 says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Our topic tonight is sola scriptura in the therapeutic age of self, victimhood, mental health, and radical autonomy. So one of the five solas of the Reformation, which is really a summary of Christianity, of the Christian faith, is what we call sola scriptura. And it's not merely that scripture has complete authority as God has given us his word over everything in the world, but also it is sufficient for life and godliness. We don't need to get, use certain critical race theories as a new guideline for how to understand the culture. Scripture itself tells us about human nature. It tells us about who God is. It tells us the problem with the world and also redemption and restoration, how things can be made right. Now, we have held that. And against the backdrop of back in the 1600s, 1500s, against the backdrop of Roman Catholicism, that was one of the summaries of the Reformation. Now, my question today is, Protestant Christians, we still hold that. How do we understand that? And how are people understanding that? How do we bring that out to fruition in an age where of therapy, of of victimhood, of mental health and radical autonomy? So here's the beginning question. What is the inherent danger of not understanding the new and dominant operating systems of the world? What is the inherent danger for us as Christians not only in how we live, but how we train our children or how we evangelize, how we lead our churches, if we don't understand the dominating operating system of our culture. If we are not intellectually challenging the dominant world system, by default, we will adapt to and adopt that system. Uh, this isn't new, by the way, in the 21st century or with critical race theory. It was also true in the patristic church. A lot of the church, at least some of the church fathers, wanted to make the faith palatable to uh, the intellectuals of the time, and therefore um, even aspects of classical Christianity tended to compromise uh, the faith. But the problem, uh, you mentioned Sola Scriptura, and this is why it's so vital. There are a lot of Christians that recognize this truth in principle, uh, Protestants, conservative Protestants. Yes, the Bible is the infallible word of God. Uh, there wouldn't be um, any other book that's infallible. Obviously, that's our source of authority. But Sola Scriptura implies something more and even deeper and more profound than that. Uh, Sola Scriptura generates a particular worldview. Now, that language, worldview, uh, based on the German term, is fairly new historically. 
But what it means is basically Romans 12, 1 and 2, our mind being transformed by the word of God. So someone has wisely put it, it means that we have to think Christianly. Now, previous times when you had uh, at least a quasi-Christian culture, basically a plausibility structure that even unbelievers lived within and could to a degree take for granted, even if they often sinned against it, things were different. But today, when you get up and check your phone in the morning, and if you turn on the TV, and when you talk to most people at work, they're assuming a radically contra-biblical worldview. So I think in answer to your question, Eric, your excellent question is if we do not allow Sola Scriptura to be more than a, a Sunday go to meeting or seminary theological postulate, then we're going to be in trouble because we're going to adapt easily, adapt uh, aspects of these alien worldviews. So we have to allow the Bible to govern not just our specific exegesis, but to allow that exegesis to reframe our entire thinking and give us the biblical wisdom necessary to address these issues. Given the imagery that you, with which you started, the imagery of the operating system, uh, I think that if we, can, if we can draw on that, the operating system of Christianity which is at the very core is are the scriptures that operating system is under assault by viruses of all kinds every day and consequently if we are not uh, engaging an antivirus uh, program which of course is rooted in the scriptures themselves we are going to see our operating system erode, be corroded, become corrupted, and eventually uh, collapse. And I must say, I don't know what it is like for everybody else, but I was reared in a Christian home. And I can honestly say that um, I was reared in such a way, trained in such a way, to think, uh, even before I became anything of a seminary student or even a Bible college student, I was trained to think uh, biblically. Now that does not mean perfectly, it means, but it does mean that I was trained to submit to the scriptures and I was trained to think God's thoughts after him before I even had any idea what that expression meant. And it seems to me that that is an essential or perspective and orientation that we individually must embrace day to day. So that, so that as we are going through the day, we actually, we actually are thinking, would this please God? Would this, would this be a, a right thing to do? So that all of our actions are governed by um, God's word and, and guided by what the scriptures have to say. And that seems to me to be what fundamentally is in, entailed in being a Christian. Now, I may be, I may be speaking to people who are all, all of you are, who have experienced the same thing from day to day, but it 
But the, when, if the scriptures do not capture our uh, minds daily, so that we, when we wake, we think, we are thinking in terms of scripture, biblically, so that, I think I've said this before, so that when we rise, we, we rise with the, rec with the recognition that, that God has given to me today um, a drama that I'm engaged in, in rising from sleep, which is a foreshadow of my rising in the resurrection and a reflection of um, the original rising of Adam when he was, when he received life and rose from the ground, a living being. Um, this seems to me to be, we have to be thinking like that. Otherwise, we are going to allow the viruses of this world to begin to creep in and, and, uh, and corrode that operating system. There's a lot more to say, but that that's where I would begin, I guess, Eric. And that's the, that's the big presumptive frame for how we're going to frame everything tonight now. So I'm going to ask Bob the next question. Bob, what is the biblical view of self, of anthropology? Uh -huh. How do we view ourselves or mankind? Yeah, I think that's uh, Andrew had uh, proposed that as a, a question here too as we began. And, and I think there's a, a crucial distinction between the way the, the world views uh, man, uh, the way the world system views man, and the way the Bible views man. Man as he is, is something we need to understand versus the way man, I think, imagines himself to be. Mm -hmm. And man as he is, is a sinner, a sinner who's in, yet still in the image of God. And yet the world would say man is in his own image and, and able to do good. And so there's a fundamental distinction between how the scriptures set forth who we are and how man in himself sees himself. And the scriptures would say man has a, an inability to do good, where the world would say, no, uh, we have the ability to do good, and, but yet it would be as man, man himself defines what's good. Uh, his definition of good comes out of himself. It doesn't come out of the scripture. Man is fundamentally by the scriptures, I think, driven by his pride, where the, the man of, of the world doesn't understand that. The man of the world is, is, is a man who sees himself as the center of all things, striving for autonomy, where... The biblical man is the man who is dependent upon his God for everything, for life and breath and all things. The, the scriptural man, the biblical man, is the man who uh, allows God to define uh, and to grant to him rights and responsibilities, where the uh, 
the man of the world is, is a man who he defines his own rights or he allows the state to define those rights for him. Uh, and so you have on the one hand truth being determined uh, by God, or you have on the other hand, I think truth determined by uh, man himself uh, and you know, the, the precedent that uh, uh, is set in, in, in law courts. We, we see uh, the courts defining what's right, what's true uh, in our day by what other courts have decided. And so there's no objective standard often. It's just simply what, what have the, the previous decisions rendered. And so that's truth. So with that in mind, at least let's just take our own nation as an example. The founding fathers um, presumed the depravity of man, even if they weren't Christians, which is why the main reason for, or at least one of the objective reasons for term limits, one of the objective for one of the uh, one of the pressing issues about um, separation of government, separation of powers, because the presumption was. Um, Man is not to be trusted, and too much power in one person will only demonstrate corruption. So even in the, whether they were deists or Christians or whatever they were, there was an operating system back then that they agreed with. My question for today is, how did our modern version of hyper-autonomy, how did it begin or where did it come about? That's a much different presumption than let's just say our leaders of our nation or our elites write about or talk about today. Yeah, I've thinking about that. I have an answer. I'm not sure if my colleagues will agree. I suspect they'll probably agree with most of it. Um, uh, until the enlightenment, there were of course a lot of bad ideas, bad ideas started in Genesis three, but people basically had the understanding that man's life should be rooted in a objective reality outside himself. This was true even of uh, Plato and Aristotle, though they were misguided, they were pagans who understand an objective reality. In fact, Plato almost sort of <laughs> uh, recognized one in the, with the sort of the eternal ideas, which is a, a pale notion of, um, uh, and a wrong view, a distorted view of creational law, but at least they tended to recognize these objective truths. I think with the Enlightenment, and particularly with uh, the, uh, the the leading Enlightenment thinker of all, in my view, Immanuel Kant, and his uh, what's called transcendental idealism, essentially man, little by little, the door was open to man sort of creating reality. But it really started escalating in the late 18th and 19th centuries with Romanticism, and its stepchildren, existentialism, and of course, in our time, postmodernism, which essentially, and I'm getting to your answer there, Eric, that man himself is the creator. It's not just that man is defying God as the creator, is that man is the new creator. So in essence, we've kicked the creator, the true creator to the curb, but we haven't gotten rid of creation. Now we need a new creator. And I, I really do think, uh, and I'd be interested to hear what my colleagues say. I, uh, of course, everybody living in a period think it's a historical period thinks it's unique, but I do think objectively there is a uniqueness to this time we're living in, particularly in our anthropology, that um, that man himself can create reality, 
Um, I do a lot of reading by these, you know, really smart, hip intellectual folks, and more and more they acknowledge that. I was reading some of the early the surrealists, the early surrealists from the 30s and 40s, and they said, what is necessary for the just society is the uh, re-engineering and the recreation of reality. The cultural Marxists often said this again and again. Uh, and I think we see that in very tactile ways in our culture um, with all the transgenderism and uh, with the victimization cult, as you kind of there in the title, I believe, and the sort of principled narcissism. We're living in a time in which man is recreating himself and um, doesn't recognize objective standards. Of course, this can only end in chaos because there will, in the end, be these all these competing individual notions of what constitutes reality. Uh, it's, of course, it's very, at the beginning, it's very heady because people think, oh, we can get rid of God's authority. It's really cool to be liberated from that. Isn't it really great? I can create my own reality until everybody else wants to create his own reality. And uh, then you have this, constant cacophony of, of ideas and what essentially chaos it's cultural chaos that we're living in so that's kind of a long answer to your question but that's where i think it came from and that's why i think that we're living in times that are fairly significant and momentous and if we don't have a return to at least the beginning of a return to a christian worldview i do fear for the near future of course as you guys know my eschatology is is very optimistic but that doesn't guarantee that anytime soon uh, there's going to be a return to um, a strongly biblical faith, or in our culture, there will be. So this is cause for grave concern. I would agree with what Andrew has said, and he alluded to, uh, mentioned uh, Genesis 3, the fall, and certainly we would have to say, and I think that Andrew would certainly agree with this, that from the very beginning, um, Eve was following uh, the serpent and the serpent was seeking to create his own reality and eve was willing to embrace that reality contrary to the reality that was already existing and and so so it's always been there it's always been there from the beginning of human um, existence on this earth that humans would rather create their own reality. That is, of course, the very nature of believing and, and, and uh, promulgating lies. Lies are contrary to reality by definition. But I think that Andrew is right in making the point that we have come to a critical mass in this, at this time when a whole culture has embraced the, the lie of unreality. And there are many uh, individuals who have written, um, written on this. Uh, in fact, um, Thomas Sowell has a book, uh, I've forgotten the title of it, it's, it's slipped my memory here. Uh, but, he, uh, but the point that he makes is the, stubborn, the stubbornness of reality. Um, and and others have written books uh, on on the creation of unreality. And of course, and of course, what what these folks have to do is they have to they have to um, engage in the 
deconstruction or the decreation of creation uh, in order first to deny the in order first to deny reality and then of course create their own reality and so we are living in a time I, I'm fully persuaded uh, in which a conversation with virtually anybody might very well uh, come up against two completely different worldviews of reality. Um, and, and so I think that Andrew is, is on to something there when he makes the point that we have come to a period uh, that is rather unique. I agree with all that. And uh, that's been causing me to think for the last few years that because of this, I think everything Ardell said is true because of this, we have to think about what Francis Schaeffer called pre-evangelism. We cannot assume that unbelievers in general are going to have the same mental architecture as we present the gospel to them that my, my parents, like Ardell's, maybe Bob's are godly folks, grew up in the 50s, uh, still basically a broad Christian consensus. You could preach the gospel. Billy Graham could preach the gospel about salvation. People would understand what sin was, at least. They could understand the idea of judgment. Uh, every unbeliever there basically could. But we can no longer assume that, because once you start recreating your own reality, then you have to assume another starting point, which leads me to believe we must think hard about this issue of how to evangelize in a world in which most people, not everybody, but most people are creating, are assuming they're creating their own reality. And again, I would, I would uh, wholeheartedly agree with what Andrew has just said there uh, and, and make another point that is cor correlating to that point. And that is, in a real sense, we have, we now find ourselves in essentially the same situation that the apostles did in the first century, going out into a world that had no knowledge of, of the gospel. And so everything, wherever they went, wherever Paul went to the, to the Gentiles, um, he had to do what uh, Francis Schaeffer is talking about, a pre-evangelism. And so, so we see that. We see a good example of that in Paul's um, Mars Hill, uh, Areopagus yeah. uh, message, uh, mm -hmm. where, he, where he understands, as Van Til would point out, the points of contact, the points of contact that are there in that worldview connecting with the gospel. And, and, and so I think that Andrew is exactly right. We have to learn how to do that. We cannot presume like uh, Campus Crusade used to do uh, with their four spiritual laws. The four spiritual laws uh, worked in a world that is very different from ours. Yes. They do not work in the world that is ours today. And, and all you have to do is watch some programs like Jeopardy, for example. The ignorance, I mean, these people are brilliant who get on Jeopardy, but the, the desperate ignorance of the Bible comes out sometimes and I, it's just appalling. For example, the other day, uh, a woman actually thought that the book of Job was to be pronounced job because it had <laughs> something to do with, uh, with, a, uh, with a career. But we, but we see 
we see evidence all around us of what Andrew is talking about. Mm -hmm. Have either of you gentlemen or anyone there um, worked your way through Truman's book, his, his new book on the rise and triumph of the modern self? Yeah, that's uh, on my Bob, bookcase for next. Okay. I, I I jokingly tell people, Bob, it's like seventeenth on my list. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, I I'm, know it's great. I got to read I, it soon. I'm, yeah, I, I'm plowing my way through it. It's uh, it's not a light read, but uh, right. But he he there drawing on others uh, looks at where we're at today, and he sees uh, not his own original analysis, but that there's. There are three worlds, first world, second world, third world. Uh, and those are defined by the first world, not, not typically as, as we would understand those, but first world being a world where Christianity sort of gives the, the meaning to, uh, to things and life. And so there's a transcendent uh, God in, in that system, uh, that world. The second world being really... Uh, pagan uh religions and, and and yet there's still some transcendent uh being there giving meaning outside of the the culture or the, the uh, people um but then he he goes on to speak about how we're now in what's called a, a third world uh which is not really a culture per se but almost anti-culture because it's defined by chaos mm. And so there's no transcendent uh, authority uh, now, often in the world that we live in. I'm not sure, uh, you know, how do we how do we help people now who have no sense of a transcendent uh, authority? No, I agree with all that. I, I think I go back to what David Wells said, and I know this, this, this program episode is kind of based on one of his books, but he said something that was powerful years ago. The gospel makes only makes sense in a moral universe. And so to say, well, let's just preach Christ. Well, I think today, most of the time, we have to start with creation because Jesus Christ only has meaning in the sort of universe that God created. And if you presuppose another universe, the self-generated mental construct of a universe, it won't do. You could say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll accept Jesus. Isn't he like one of the great teachers? And I'll incorporate him into my universe. Maybe he can help me through life's troubles. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the Jesus of Christianity. So I think in many cases, as Paul did, and Ardell was pointing this out, we have to begin with a return to reality, a return to creation, so that the gospel will have meaning. Now, to a, modern, a lot of modern evangelicals, they'll say, oh, that's twisted, because we need to start with the evangel. But the evangel, the good news, only has meaning in a universe that God created, not one created by man. So I think in many cases, we have to start with creation. Here's a question then related to this kind of um, in the sense of we've talked about, um, uh, you know, just the lack of meaning. Um, David, I think Francis Schaeffer calls it two types of lostness, where a person is lost, but at least in the Judeo-Christian culture, you can point them to the law, and then they can be found in Christ. But now they're like law; they're they're spiritually lost, but there's also no point of reference for anybody in their life to where truth is found. So, my question would be then this: Everybody searches for meaning, and now we have what well, at least we titled tonight this hypertherapeutic. Um, uh, this therapeutic age of self. 
So my question would be this, how has modern psychology become the secularized or even the paganized version of historic Christian ministry or the alternative? Because haven't we often seen, it's not that people are just happy atheists that are just stoics all the time, but many have jumped head and heels into any number of hyper-psychologized, which, you know, or, or even Eastern mystic yoga or any number of other self-help type guides <clears throat> to mental health. So how did modern psychology, what is it and how did it become the alternative to historic Christianity where you're found by the therapeutic now and not Christianity? At the risk of being wrong, I will, uh, I'll jump in on that one. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when psychology began to rise, particularly within evangelicalism. And, uh, and I'll mention a name, and some of you may not know this name, but uh, Bruce Naramore was the um, leading psychologist. Uh, and he, he eventually founded a school, and that school now is part of the Biola uh, Talbot Theological Seminary. Uh, complex, but Bruce Naramore had a radio program and Christian radio, I think, promoted uh, psychology in as much as they promoted Bruce Naramore. And I, I remember as a kid uh, hearing, hearing his program on local Christian radio here in the Twin Cities. And, and Bruce Naramore, of course, had his own um, psychology and his own worldview, uh, and it was it was a blend of Christianity and psychology. But then, of course, there arose a number of others from that, uh, and and eventually, I think that that psychology uh, really took over uh, evangelicalism and rivaled arrival much of Christian theology in um, the late 70s and early 80s with, uh, with books uh, that were flooding the market at the time and have flooded the market and have transformed, or maybe better, thoroughly corrupted our Christian teachings on uh, sin, forgiveness, repentance, and so forth. Um, from the from the late seventies onward, um, and one of the uh, one of the chief one of the chief players in that came from Fuller Theological Seminary. Boy, why is the name not coming back to me? Um, Andrew, you know the name. Uh, we've we've had conversations about it, uh, um, oh. but he he wrote on he wrote on uh, on this and. And I think that that was the rise of psychology and psychotherapeutics. And psychotherapeutics has, has so thoroughly corrupted our doctrine, the Christian doctrine of, of uh, sin, repentance, forgiveness, confession, restoration, and all that, that it's, it's impossible for me to speak on that without being um, almost violently opposed. Um, and, and so that's, that's been my observation from childhood on. 
perhaps others have experienced or seen something else. I agree entirely with Ardell. I used to listen to Naramore too. I think this is one prime example. What Naramore essentially did is he was operating within this bifurcated evangelicalism, which saw the evangel, the gospel, good news in a narrow way. And he sort of grafted modern psychology, graft, tried to graft it onto the biblical truth in the gospel and sprinkle a little biblical truth in it. It's a little biblical morality, but operate on essentially the I mean, modern psychology actually began uh, in Germany early in the 20th century. Um, the, the early early ones, I mean, um, from Freud to Jung, they were really bad guys intellectually in other ways. And everybody that followed Rogers and others. It's as a modern psychology is a radically secular approach to the faith. There's nothing whatsoever Christian about it. And the notion, whether it's Minnerith and Meyer who came later or Bruce Naramore could somehow graft psychology onto a, a, a biblical truth in the biblical faith, looking back on it, I understand why Ardell is violently opposed. It's maddening. Why did, how did they think that they could do this? Well, they thought they could do it because they had already a dualistic and bifurcated view of the Christian faith. This happens true not only with psychology, but politics and other areas, just sort of graft, you know, alien philosophies onto the gospel and the gospel will clean everything up, uh, this narrow gospel they have. Um, I, I'll mention quickly, historically, we do have some examples of, if you want to use the term biblical psychology, I think you'll find much uh, psychology according to a much more biblical worldview, you'll find in a lot of the Puritans. These were doctors of the soul. Now, were they perfect? Uh, uh, no. Were they a little too morbid sometimes? Yes, of course. Uh, but they weren't attempting to graft alien worldviews onto the Bible. They really believed in sola scriptura, and they said, well, what does the Bible have to say about the conditions of man, about mm -hmm. sadness and defeat, and uh, what we would call, what we, they wouldn't call, but we would call lack of self-esteem. They addressed all those things. Uh, so returning to those, again, not slavishly or infallibly, the Bible's our final standard, but it's because the church gave up the genuine care of souls based on a biblical worldview that we have people like Bruce Naramore and Minerth and Meyer and all sorts of these other ones that come on, and they're they're basically evangelical rock stars, and they get their radio programs, and people call in and get advice. Some advice is good. A lot of it is just even the good advice is based on bad premises, uh, and it leads to destroyed lives. So... Yeah, it's a real problem. And the, saying that, I think the whole thing has to be rethought. The whole thing has to be rethought uh, because it's so bad. Mm -hmm. Lewis Smeads was the name that yes. I was trying to think yes. of. Lewis right. Smeads from Fuller Seminary. Right. Um, and, and now we see a number of books that are published on what is called soul care. And so soul care has become the property of psychologists and psychotherapeutics. But, um, of course, if we're thinking rightly, we have to say that psychology is not some kind of discipline that is a standalone. Psychology, rightly conceived, is, is a, an aspect of theology of yes. Christian teaching, Christian doctrine. So it's part of anthropology. Um, 
But of course, even Christian schools have a department called psychology that is completely bifurcated from yes. the biblical and theological studies department. The same thing is true in in seminaries. They have they have the theological uh, portion, and then they have the psychology portion. And until we until we bring the psychology back under the under the Christian theology department, we're we're just flirting with disaster, I think. And, and I would say, I'm say the excuse me that the bifurcation continues into the ministry itself. Two yes. of you men there, are pastors. So you have somebody come and say. And I'm a parishioner. I've had a lifelong problem with depression. And the pastor thinks, well, I'm not qualified to deal with this. So I'm going to send you to a psychologist. Well, pray tell, if the man of God who should know the word of God in touch with the spirit of God on his face before God is not qualified to deal with what is called depression, well, then who is qualified to deal with? But it's precisely because of this attitude that Ardell pointed out in the seminaries of this bifurcated view that the experts uh, are are enlisted to handle this problem. And that's the last place some of these folks should go. And is, is the answer, can it be summarized as simply as sola scriptura? The scripture is sufficient through all of its message and genres and about mankind and the solutions in Christ to deal with our real problems. Is that is that just a fair summary? And is it as simple as we just don't believe the scripture? Yes. Now, having said that, some of those on the other side would say, well, are you saying that you can open up a Bible verse to deal with uh, various new psychological problems? Um, oh, what are some of the various... Anorexia nervosa. Ah, there you go. And uh, those people that are up and down all the time. Uh, no, the Bible doesn't specifically address that, but it the wisdom of the Bible generates a way of thinking. You're exactly right on that, Eric. It generates a way of thinking that is in line with the word of God, that's radically different from secular psychology. So yes, the answer is solo scriptura. So, so, so with anorexia nervosa, um, scripture is sufficient yes. because scripture does instruct us uh, with regard to being grateful for, uh, for all things that the Lord has given to us for food, and the necessity of nourishing the bodies and so forth. And so that is the place uh, where we can go. And, but unfortunately, um, Andrew's right. Uh, pastors, too many pastors say, oh, I'm not qualified. So I need to find somebody who's, uh, who specializes in that area. That's precisely what you should not do, be doing. Yes. I know of way too many cases where pastors have punted and have passed individuals with serious problems off to the so-called experts and the the first actions that are taken are entirely contrary to all things biblical um, for example um, if a if a wife goes to a pastor and uh and says says certain things and his and his uh, antenna go up, and he thinks, uh, "Oh, this is uh, this is uh, this is an abuse problem. Uh, I need to uh, I need to get her some help." And she and he passes her off to some specialist. And I know that I know cases like this. And what is the first thing that the specialist does? He separates. He he insists that she separate from her husband, 
for X number of uh, weeks or X number of months. I know of cases, I have, I have a friend who's been married for almost 40 years. His wife went to, um, went to a pastor and, and minister and, uh, and certain code words, uh, he recognized certain words as these are, these are flashpoints and he, and he, uh, he insisted that uh, they separate, they're separated, they've been separated now since uh, September of 2019. Mm. Uh, and that is entirely contrary to First Corinthians seven. <laughs> the very the very thing that Paul instructs husbands and wives to do is not separate for anything other than agreed agreed upon time. Why? <clears throat> lest the lest the devil uh, tempt and uh, and bring about even greater sins. So th these things are happening all over the. And churches are filled with problems like this. I, I, I could list numerous situations like this. Broken marriages, marriages that are about to break because pastors have, have uh, looked to psychologists as specialists rather than go to the word themselves. Next, next I'm going to do another question. Thank you, Ardell. Thank you, Andrew, for um, your summary of uh, what, we, what we see is really acute epidemic problem. Um, how about this one? How does it relate? And Bob, I'm going to start with you on this. What are the related to this modern psychology movement? Certainly now we're getting into what we would directly see as more cultural Marxism, but I want to see if it's related somehow. What about this idea of the modern concept of victimhood, which we certainly are seeing all over the place now, at least in um, well, at least, I mean, if it's not always said, it's implied. Where where does this idea come in? How people see themselves as victims, or this becomes kind of the new anthropology for life. Where, where, what is that root here? Hmm. The, well, yeah, I'm not, I guess I'm not sure of the, the connection. I mean, Marxism has its own drive towards victimhood or, or the oppressed. Uh, modern psychology uh, has uh, something built maybe, into it. Maybe it's maybe I would say I rephrase that. Maybe it's more yeah. part of kind of the bigger woke idea, this victim mentality. Maybe not necessarily Marxist, but this yeah. how it's been melded with with critical race theory and and therapy or modern therapy has been kind of melded together with this victimhood idea. Yeah, yeah, um, it's a curious marriage in ways. I think. Uh, you know, cultural Marxism as we know it uh, seems to have arisen out of uh, Marxist ideas wedded with Freudian sexual issues and psychology. And so you get this strange marriage sort of of these two together that moves forward with, uh, with all of that swirled together. I, I, uh, I'm not sure how uh, how the two connect directly, but I know, you know, old Marxists despise the new cultural Marxism because they see it as sort of a uh, a, a decadent uh, combination of Freud's sexual ideas and uh, Marxism. Um, but maybe maybe the other the other gentleman can uh, un unravel that a little further. I'm not sure. No, I agree with that, but I, I mean, I, I'll posit a little theory. I'm, 
in my investigation, I think much of this modern victim, victimhood goes back to one of the most pernicious thinkers in the West, and the Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, Rousseau radically denied original sin, and I'll tell you right now, whenever you deny original sin, victimhood is not far away, because Rousseau's idea is that people are basically, not basically, they are born good and free into a world that has been corrupted by institutions, by the culture itself, and therefore it's necessary to uh, marginalize and destroy that culture for the individuals themselves to rise to be what they actually should be in their nice little uh, authentic hearts. Because of that, anybody who um, who suffers anything or complains, it's not. it could not possibly be the result of their own interior internal life, but a result of this external world, not the physical world, but what we would call the culture, cultural institutions. He would, for Rousseau, it would be the family and the church and business and all of this traditional culture. So if you deny original sin, then the problem in the world has to be somewhere else. And that somewhere else is in, I don't know, everything from business, free markets, to white supremacy, to the patriarchal family, to the Republican Party, as the case may be, that I think is the real source of a lot of this stuff. And but I do agree with Bob. It's Marxism actually. And by the way, all of the main Marxist thinkers will freely acknowledge a debt to Rousseau. They love Rousseau because only on his way of thinking can they create, in their view, the perfect society. The society has to be reconstructed because man is innocent, and therefore we have to create a society to fulfill the dreams of this innocent man. Yeah, and we we could drive it, you know, as you, you mentioned, we could go all the way back to the garden. Yes. And, and that, that was the first uh, yes. uh, response was victimhood uh, to the fall where the Lord confronted Adam. And uh, it was that uh, it was that woman that you gave me uh, and, and Eve uh, pointed to the serpent. So it was someone else is responsible, not me. The, the issue in Rousseau was what he called resentment. Um, yes. And that is, in other words, what, what we see um, contemporaries engaged in is uh, essentially grievances. I mean, yes. it's, it, grievances are the resentments of, um, of Rousseau's worldview. Yes. And, and so another, another factor that um, if you're following my, my blog discussion that is the current one, what happened to Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, I'm revisiting Shelby Steele's book, White Guilt, and, and his two earlier books as well, uh, Content of Our Character and A Dream Deferred. I read them uh, many years ago when they first came out. But one of the points that he makes about victimhood is, is a very important one, I think, and that is uh, Victimhood is completely dependent upon the those to whom one is those to against whom one is expressing a grievance. They have they to the degree that they are willing to <clears throat> surrender their moral authority to that degree. Victimhood gains ascendancy, and this is precisely why we 
must not surrender moral authority to them. Amen. We must right. maintain moral authority, which is, of course, sola scriptura. Right. And, yes. and because, because when that happens, and that's exactly the point that he's making that happened in the 1960s. I mean, I think that, I think that um, we have to do a lot more study and research on what really began, all these things really began in the 1960s. Uh, and, and the surrender of, of America's moral authority by the politicians and by Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president, has, has given us the predicament that we now find ourselves in, uh, where we have a dominating culture of victimization. Uh, and, victim, and victimhood is something to be glory in. But I, but I fully agree with what Bob and, um, and Andrew has said, and, and Bob is exactly right. Victimization started in the garden. Um, what was the first thing that Eve did was she blamed the, she blamed the uh, serpent, and, and then Eve, Adam blamed her. Um, victim, victimhood is endemic to uh, sinfulness. And they agree with all that, and they're built-in inhibitors. Uh, to a grievance culture, because as long as you create a rationale for your grievance, you don't have any incentive to change or to have any progress. And uh, therefore you spend, if people, some people live this way, they live their entire lives uh, in, uh, in grievance culture, and they really don't accomplish anything except essentially complain. They can't do anything generally productive. They can't progress things, move things along, because they're committed only to their own victimhood and their own grievances. Uh, and sometimes the, we're not denying that there aren't legitimate grievances. There can be. There are true victims. But that's not really what we're talking about now. We're talking about latching on to alleged in, and invented historical grievances. And that is an inhibitor to living a godly life. You can't do it if you don't get past that. Here's a question for you, by the way, excellent answers on that one. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, there's a, a big term that certainly we hear a lot of, and it tends to be this all-encompassing term is the idea of mental health. What is the biblical view of mental health? Well, I would start with Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, a mind that is transformed to be like Christ's mind. By the way, I don't deny that there are mental disorders. I'm a man is depraved in every aspect of his being. And I don't mean that all what we call mental health problems are because of one individual specific sin. I'm not suggesting that at all, but original sin is very deep. <laughs> and just as we have physical deformities, so we have mental deformities. Uh, people that say, well, that's just all made up. Well, you're really denying the power of sin. I mean, sin runs deep in uh, the genes of uh, a fallen man. But uh, what we call mental health is essentially a mind that is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, definitively at that time and progressively by the filling of the Spirit and immersion in and obedience to the Word of God. Uh, in fact, I would say that unbelievers that uh, who seem to have very good mental health only have it because they're acting contrary to their basic presuppositions. As somebody wisely said, if you really are an atheist, you'd be killing yourself. All atheists would be committing suicide. 
they have to borrow Christian presuppositions and Christian capital even to stay alive. I think the same thing is true as is true of so-called mental health. Yeah, mental mental health is an interesting term. You know, it's probably only been around since at least uh, maybe the mid eighteen hundreds, right? As a, a concept of, of of who we are or what we we need. You know, but I think scripture. Scripture points us not, you know, the world has a view of mental health that is a person who is basically constantly happy, comfortable, without distress. And so we try to get people to that place of happiness, you know, this constant uh, happiness in their in their life. But one, that's just not the world. I mean, it's just a futile because the world is world is brutal it's hard life is hard and and so you you can't get people to a place where they'll be uh without trouble uh or trouble won't bother them in a certain sense so Bible's view is really one where it's, it's not freedom from difficulty but it's it's learning to hope in god in the midst of everything being able to worship him uh, in your joys, in your sorrows, in your trials, in your triumphs, in your mourning, in in, in your joy, and it's it's being content in, in every circumstance that God brings. It's con you know, Romans eight. Uh, it's confident in in the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus, even though we're as sheep to the slaughter. It's knowing, as the hymn writer says, that though the wrong is off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Amen. I mean, there's just so many parts to what you might say biblical mental health, if we use the term. That, uh, you know, it, it it's also one I think is, you know, it, to get to that place of, of life where you're uh, being able to worship the Lord uh, and, and have hope in him in all circumstances. You, you need to be like Ryle. J.C. Ryle said that, that it, takes a, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Amen. Uh, so that every believer needs every part of the Bible in some aspect. In, in some way, it's going to contribute to your hope in God, to, to carrying you through all circumstances, uh, looking upward to him. You can walk through probably every book of the Bible and, and and see that there are truths there that if you don't know, you will be weaker in your faith in some aspect. And so that's, uh, I think, the, the sola scriptura idea there in our mental health is that uh, we, we need the whole Bible for that. Well, most... Um most psychologists, if I can uh, appeal to them, speak of mental health as um, a, a reasonably properly balanced uh, living in reality, a connect, being connected with reality. And if that's the case, what uh, both Bob and Andrew have uh, spoken of is this, is that there is, an, there is a reality beyond that reality that we see. Yeah. And thus, thus, true mental health is 
connected to the unseen reality, the reality that, uh, that is imaged by the visible, the invisible, the invisible reality, the, uh, the governance, the kingdom of God, um, uh, it, that, is, that is where true mental health uh, comes in. But we are living in a world in which uh, increasing numbers of people are thoroughly disconnected with the reality. Mm. Um, sure. I mean, we're, we're governed by people who are disconnected with, from reality. We have a president who's disconnected from reality in more ways than one, uh, and a vice president and senators. And it, it's so, so being connected with reality is certainly a starting point, but the greater, the greater reality that we need to connect with is that which the scriptures themselves portray for us. As and I would and Andrew add, said. no, no. And I'd like to add, there's another invisible reality, darker and more sinister that is not taken into account since the enlightenment. You cannot believe the Bible and assume that demonic activity does not have any role to play mm. in so-called mental health. Am I arguing that all, you know, what are called mental problems, mental health issues are caused by that? Of course not. But when cannot fairly read the Bible and believe the Bible and suggest and scoff at, as most modern psychologists, if they heard me, they would just laugh. What an old superstitious belief, this old fuddy-duddy. Mm -hmm. But if we're Christians, we actually do believe the Bible. There's a great deal of demonic activity involved in so-called mental health issues. And to act as though we're going to have naturalistic solutions alone is to really deny Sola Scriptura. I think you're right, Andrew. And we see, mm -hmm. we see, um, evidence of that in the Gospels themselves. Yes. Uh, uh, what else was possessing? I mean, yes, it was demonic possession, but demonic possession impelled a man to strip himself of his clothes, to cut himself and live in tombs. Yes. Uh, that, that certainly is a picture of humanity. And of course, when Jesus, when Jesus expels the demon, um, when the when the townspeople come to find him, they find him sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. Uh, so I think I think uh, Andrew's exactly right. We need to we need to acknowledge that very dark, sinister dimension. We're moving now towards some practical questions. We've got about twenty minutes left. Maybe one one question particularly would be. Anecdotally, we've noticed this trend in our church, at least. Uh, sometimes new people, they'll come for a while. And my wife and I use the term, they you can tell when they've been heavily psychologized, meaning they don't disagree or act offended even with the hardest sermons. They agree with everything. But what we've noticed is they treat me like a therapist and Sunday like the therapy event. So they get in their their you know, so I'm not a pastor, I'm a therapist to tell them. And so they're affirming of everything about Jesus. They're they're happy with the gospel. They will affirm the gospel. But there's they're thoroughly bought into the therapeutic world. So Jesus is merely their therapist. I'm their he's their therapist par excellence. I'm their therapist. My question would be, what about the how do we practically 
be aware of that and address that in the church? Is it is it just hitting hard on the doctrine of repentance? I mean, we've kind of hit some of the things already, but how do we make sure, even as we're evangelizing people, that we're aware of that, that there's a lot of very agreeable people who will tell them the gospel and they'll be okay with it because they that sounds like a positive thing to add to my life? That's a profound question. I'm sure that my colleagues and I have given it a lot of thought. It was not Michael Horton that invented or at least popularized this term moral therapeutic deism a few years ago. Uh, Christian, that, Christian Smith, but yes, Michael Horton. Yes, yes, okay. right, right, thanks. Yeah. Um, I think that the whole notion of the role of the pastor in preaching and teaching in the church uh, has to change in the minds of many Christians today who really look at the church and even the gospel itself is basically, look, I have trouble. The goal of the gospel is to help me get rid of my problems so that I can meet my needs. Well, of course, the pastor would be, if he's well-trained, he basically is sort of a Christian therapist. Um, so I think what is necessary is a complete, and it will take time, and the power of the Spirit and the immersion in the Word of God to change people's thinking about what the role of the pastor is. His responsibility is to preach and teach the Word of God under the filling of the Spirit. And his goal is not fundamentally to change people to meet their life needs, although the real needs will be met by that kind of preaching, but to live in the face of uh, and for the glory of God. Uh, there, is, there is one aspect of the Christian life that that sort of sort of Christian therapy almost entirely ignores, and that is godly worship. Now, I'm not saying that all the hand-raising and charismatic and evangelical worship is incompatible with that, but in many cases, in my view, that's not biblical worship. But completely turning away from the glorification of self and the glorifying of God and seeing man's place, man, as Schaefer would say, not as a zero, but man's place under God and his authority and seeking to please God in all things, that's fundamentally and radically different from this sort of uh, therapeutic, moral therapeutic deism that essentially is preached today, or as you said, Eric, is the perception of members or attendees of the needs that they have. I think that one of the reasons why so many people adopt that position and that view that you've uh, mentioned there, Eric, is, is this, that they have attended churches where evangelical pastors have used the pulpit for addressing essentially those kinds of things. Yes. Without, without being explicitly psychological about it but but you can go to church after church uh and and you can find them online as well sermon after sermon that essentially treats um treats preaching as addressing felt needs yes and and those and and so week after week this is what is the diet from the pulpit. Now, does the gospel address the issues of life? Yes. But there is a way to preach that message that 
fosters a psychologizing of the gospel. And so I suspect that what you're encountering, Eric, is you're encountering people whose diet in church has been that. And then they come and they, and they discern, huh, there's something different here. And it's not what I'm looking for. It's not what I've been accustomed to. And so they don't know how to process it. And you can go to churches and, the, and never hear, never hear sermons that address the, Christ, the Christian biblical worldview from creation to the eschaton. Uh, and, and eschatology, because, because dispensationalism overdid it and gave us, an, gave us an overdose on eschatology, for the last 30 years, I've been observing this, I mean, I've been living it, uh, for the last 30 years, if I could, if I could uh, count on one hand, if I could count on both hands uh, the sermons, I don't think I'd fill one hand that, would, that it has addressed the Christian hope that is, that is ours in Christ. You don't even hear him this at funerals. So the beginning and the ending doesn't seem to work its way into the sermons. The sermons, by and large, are help for today. And from Sunday to Sunday, it turns out that way. So I'm, I'm seeing that, I've been seeing that for the last 30 plus years. And, and it's troubled me very much, which is, which is uh, precisely what we're not doing at Christ Bible Church. One other quick offender, and we've dealt with this in earlier broadcasts, so I won't belabor the point, but I would say worse perhaps than the preaching is modern and contemporary music fits right into that. It's all about what Jesus does to me, my felt needs. I have uh, next to my bedside a wonderful hymn <clears throat> book. Actually, it's just the lyrics from an from Anglican, old-fashioned, 39 articles of Anglican hymns, largely from the uh, old 17th to the 19th centuries. And we'll hear some, or Sharon will hear, my wife and I will hear, hear one of these sort of evangelical bitty bop songs. And I think, now listen to this. And I open it up anywhere and start reading the lyrics of one of these hymns from the 18th century about the majesty of God or the wounds of Christ that secured our salvation. There is a radically different worldview behind that than essentially I was really down and Jesus actually reached down and he and I are friends now and he shares my needs and so on. There's a completely different worldview behind that. But I think perhaps even worse than the sermons is the music, this diet of, I'm always picking on Caleb, right? The diet of Caleb music that is creating people's expectations and is nothing more than a rank worldliness. It's essentially the Christianized version of this self-centered existential culture that we live in, and it's fundamentally dangerous, perhaps more dangerous than the preaching, because people often take music more seriously than they do the sermon. And, and I think it's all, you know, let's go back to the, the preaching as well. Um, I, I think it's far more, it, it's far easier to be a therapist in a pulpit than a preacher of the word. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And, and that's why a lot of men, I think, go there because they, they don't have to do the hard work often or preach the hard truths that preaching requires. They, they can be the therapist. They can be as, as uh, some self-label themselves life coaches. Uh, 
they, they, what? they're not preachers, they're life coaches. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and people uh, are drawn to that. Uh, it's, it's tickling, itching ears. I, I want somebody to tell me how to be a nicer person, a better person, uh, more, more, uh, a more well-adjusted person. Uh, the best version of yourself. The best version of myself. Yeah. Help me be a better me. There's also, I would add, a form of arrogance in that we think we know what will meet people's needs. We don't know yes. what will meet people's needs. God knows what will meet people's needs. Yes. Yeah. That's vital to understand. Related to this, then, um, why? what is the doctrine of, you know, we've talked about the doctrine of God, the doctrine of self, you know, what then is the doctrine of repentance? How has that been lost? And why is that absolutely necessary in defining our relationship with the Holy God, even as Christians? You know, Ardell was pointing out something that he hardly ever heard in preaching. This is one that I was talking to my dad about this. He's been, a, he's 88 years old, preacher of the gospel and around preaching for what, 60 years. Hmm. He says, I almost never even hear sermons on this when I was young. And many of the old-fashioned Bible-believing Baptists, and this is probably also true of Presbyterian and uh, even the old-fashioned Methodists, there would be preaching on repentance all the time. I can't remember the last time I actually heard a sermon on repentance. I, I maybe, the, maybe, maybe, maybe things are much more spiritual and godly in Minnesota, but um, and California is ultra-liberal. But I must say, in the evangelical world, it's not. It's occasionally mentioned, but then it's repentance for white supremacy or repentance for homophobia or some other idiotic thing like that. But the notion of changing one's heart and changing one's recognizing one's sin—I mean, literally, of course—is Ardell's the New Testament exegete. That means basically changing and turning around. Uh, that's uh, it, it, the acknowledging of one's sin, radical acknowledging of one's sin and a willingness and a determination and an actual change. No, that's actually not something that is on the agenda item of 21st century evangelicalism. And isn't, isn't it, can it be summarized with under a creational worldview that we recognize as opposed to the therapeutic view, I am limited and I'm, a, and I'm sinful. I'm limited by creation, needing God, but I'm also sinful, disconnected from God. So Isaiah 66, 1 through 2, this is the one to whom God will look. He who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. So we read the Bible, isn't it? Isn't it just necessary? Isn't repentance the reminder that we are to constantly be renewing our covenant with God through godly repentance? particularly repenting of sin, repenting of uh, pride, rep asking the Lord to be working in us. Um, in me, there is no good thing. Is, is, that, is that a fair assessment of that, would you say? Yes, and I would also tie this to the early issue of mental health, so-called mental health. One reason that people go through the agony as they do it, one reason is because they don't understand repentance. It's remarkable how that a mind can be cleaned and cleared when we genuinely repent, confess our Amen. sin to God, and put it away. The calm and the peace. I mean, look only of David in the Old Testament. Uh, the, mm. the sort of peace and calm that God brings to a heart in life when people truly repent. But as someone wisely said, and I, I, I think it might be your wife Miriam might have posted this. It was a powerful statement. A lady wrote something 
she says, you know, all of you guys going to therapy out there, have you thought about maybe your problem isn't that you need more therapy, you need more repentance. That's exactly right. And uh, but that's this is not a doctrine that is preached much today. And it's another example of us thinking we know what people need rather than recognizing that know that God knows what people need. Once again, I think that we can attribute the loss of preaching of repentance to psychotherapeutics, which arose from people like Lewis Meads and others, because what they did is they became fixated on forgiveness. And, and what they mean by forgiveness is a world of difference from what the Bible means by forgiveness. Because, of course, forgiveness, biblically speaking, requires repentance. If a person does not repent of the sin done against me, I had better not grant forgiveness for, this, for the sin. Because if I do, I am contradicting the gospel itself. Now, that doesn't, but that doesn't mean that I am bitter. Bitterness is not resolved by forgiving unforgive, unrepented sin. Um, but we've, but we are, we are so, we're so captivated in the evangelical world by psychotherapeutics with regard to forgiveness that their doctrine of forgiveness has nullified the need for repentance. And so if there is no need for repentance, why preach it? I, I think that that's where we can put the, uh, the large blame. And so I think for the last, for a whole generation, um, it's, I think it's at least uh, 40 years since I heard a bona fide sermon on repentance. And would we not say one of the reasons we don't hear that is because we've been so taken over, like we talked about from the very beginning, our world is so taken over by a therapeutic view, a mental health view that we don't really have an, a, it's replaced original sin. Yes. So yeah, we don't need right. to repent. We can seek forgiveness in God, which is merely an addition so we don't feel bad all the time. Is that right, Ardell? Yeah. Yeah. And and victims, victims don't need to repent. And so... If we're, right. we're cast as victims, then there's no call or, or it's it's seen as a, a horrible thing to ask for repentance of a victim. And, yeah, we, and these, we need to change these, our thinking. Of, oh, I'm sorry. We need to change our thinking about ourselves rather than our relationship to God. Those are two different things. And these psychotherapeutics, uh, like Lewis Meads, I mean, Lewis Meads actually speaks about forgiving God. Mm -hmm. I mean... It's, it's a monstrous notion, uh, and we're so we're living in a world that where, where these things are so thoroughly uh, corroded that repentance has lost its place, uh, and, and to hear a sermon on repentance is, is a remarkable uh, feat in itself. Ardell, that brings up a real quick point here, if you could address real quick. Um, we hear this a lot in the therapeutic world. I just need to learn to forgive myself. What is that all about? How do we respond to that? <laughs> um, well, first of all, people are not forgiven. Sins are forgiven. People are not pardoned. People receive pardon for pardoned crimes. <laughs> but forgive, biblically speaking, gospel speaking, 
People are not forgiven. People receive forgiveness of their sins. And so the notion that I need to forgive myself is, is just a preposterous notion. Yeah. I, don't have, I don't have the power to forgive my own sins. And, and so they have, what they have taken, what they've done is they've hijacked a biblical term and, and filled it up with their own meaning. And it sounds Christian, but it is fundamentally not Christian at all. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a it's a foreign gospel, and and the church is full of it. Even reformed churches are full of it. Yeah. It's 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 frightening, actually. Well, that, Which of yeah. course is one of the reasons I've written on it and spoken on it so frequently. I'm very concerned about it. Numerous times had to and tried to labor with people to work through the issue of what is forgiveness. What does it mean? And to, help them see that forgiveness isn't simply an ignoring of the sin or simply a, 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 a wishing it to go away or um, pretending it's not there anymore. Oh, but it forgiveness means that the one who forgives accepts upon himself the cost of the offense uh, or the debt. So the forgiver is the one who bears the cost in sin. It doesn't mean that it, forgiveness doesn't mean it just simply disappears. When God forgives, he doesn't simply snap his fingers and, and the debt is just gone. It means he bears it uh, himself. And so uh, we see that at the cross in Christ that uh, God bore sin in his son. Uh, for us. He didn't just wish it away uh, or decree it gone, but he he took it upon himself in his son. And, and likewise, when we forgive, uh, it's, it's a bearing of the cost of what someone did to us, where we're not going to require them to bear it. We will own it. Uh, but that, as Ardell said, it requires repentance biblically. It requires them to come to us and seek that. And then we, uh, in the model of Christ, uh, lavish that upon them. We own, we suffer the consequence, in a sense, of what they have sinned or done against uh, towards us. If I may make a connection yeah. back to uh, a point that was made much earlier, Andrew brought up, um, brought up Francis Schaeffer. And, and the connection that I want to make here is... Um, Here's an example. This is a vivid example of how, how we are living in a world that has hijacked biblical categories and biblical terms to the extent that if you preach on forgiveness and repentance, you are not going to be understood. Right. Why? Because, because the world has redefined these things. And so, and so, you can count on it that most of the people who are listening to your sermon how are doing so through the filter of psychotherapeutics yes. and yeah. and we have to we have to take that worldview on and destroy it as in Paul's categories of 2 Corinthians 10 
we have to destroy the arguments and the beliefs that are uh, that have become attached to that entire worldview that is destroying the gospel from within the church itself. So there's a there's a good example of the thing that Francis Schaeffer was speaking of how mm -hmm. we need to do pre-evangelism. We might need to do we might need to do evangelism pre-evangelism in our own churches. Yes. Well, gentlemen, we are drawing to a conclusion now. Any last comments before I make a final statement? Then I'll ask Bob to pray. Any last comments? I'll make a quick one. I think the Eric, you were dead right to anchor all of this in sola scriptura. Uh, sola scriptura is not just a sort of doctrinal postulate that oh yeah, the Bible's our authority. We go to church and we believe all the Bible doctrines. It's designed to govern every aspect of our life and thought. And if we sort of limit it only to confessions of faith or what's said at church on Sunday and live this dualistic or bifurcated life, we'll constantly compromise and fall into these very errors we're talking about. We really must be immersed in and saturated by the Word of God in all of our thinking. And you can't do that unless you read it and meditate on it. Amen. Go up to Zion. Let us draw near to the Lord.